Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is Martin Luther's treatise, The Freedom of a Christian, which this year is celebrating its 500th anniversary. And as often with Luther, it's astounding how immediate and present his writing is even after half a millennium's distance. Uh, This is one of many treatises Luther wrote in 1520. It was a banner year for him in production. It was also the last year before he was formally condemned. So although he was certainly a theologian in hot water, he was not yet a condemned or illegal one. This remains one of our all-time favorite writings of Luther's. I've taught it every year since 2009 in the uh, seminar I do in uh, Wittenberg, Germany with my colleague Theodor Dieter. But this will be my first time officially talking about it to Dad, though, Dad, I think it has formed the subtext of many a theological conversation. Now, you are the guy who wrote the book, or should I say the novel, about Luther and Pope Leo, to whom this treatise is addressed. So why don't you, um, less fictionally and more factually, tell us about why exactly Luther took it upon himself to inform the Pope of his time about what Christianity and freedom actually was. Uh, that's funny. Yes, I wrote a, a book in fifty uh, in twenty seventeen called Luther versus Pope Leo, and it was a, of course a, it was a historical fiction, but the historical fiction was based upon the open letter to Pope Leo the tenth, with which Luther prefaced the treatise The Freedom of the Christian, and in this open letter we see Luther for the last time, being ecumenically open, trying to make his case to the Pope that his theology was orthodox, legitimate, and Catholic, and should not be condemned. And so he actually does some very, very fun uh, Renaissance flattery. You, O Leo, sit as a lamb in the midst of wolves, he writes. How can you alone oppose these monsters? I have truly despised your see, the Roman Curia, which, however, neither you nor anyone else can deny is more corrupt than any Babylon or Sodom ever was, and which, so far as I can see, is characterized by a completely depraved, hopeless, and notorious godlessness. Kind of a backhanded compliment there. (laughs) (laughs) Almost unhappy Leo you are sitting on a most dangerous throne. I am telling you the truth because I wish you well, right? <laughs> and we could go on and, and on, on, and on like that. Yeah, right. George Tavard, a Catholic theologian, once pointed out that Luther made this distinction between the person of the Pope, whom he, in 1520, still regards as the chief pastor of the Western Church, and the Curia, uh, the Vatican bureaucracy, which he uh, obviously despised. And Tavard made the comment, many Catholics have made a similar distinction. And even <laughs> even today, Pope Francis is in the midst of a terrible battle with the forces of the Vatican bureaucracy. So this is a problem that's been there for a long time and continues to exist. But I, I think it's important to point out that this treatise is one of Luther's most polemically free treatises. The treatise itself is not the open letter, obviously. But uh, Luther is trying his persuasive best to convince Pope Leo X that his theology is evangelical, orthodox, and Catholic. And so that in itself uh, commends the treatise to our attention. 
Yeah, I would put it up there with the large catechism as kind of Luther at his um, centrist best in the sense of not attacking right, left, up and down, but really trying to state as plainly and clearly as possible what the content of the gospel is. Right. Yeah, that's enough by way of introduction. Let's. Uh, why don't you take us into the treatise, Sarah? Okay, so by way of getting there, so the obviously the title is The Freedom of a Christian, so it concerns freedom. And of course, freedom is a very familiar concept to us nowadays, but for very different reasons, largely political ones, and we'll come back to that at the end. But even regarding personal freedom, Dad, I'm going to advance a daring thesis, and I'd like to hear you reflect on it before we get into it. I think that as a rule, people say they desire freedom, but in fact, freedom is highly undesirable to most people and avoided at all costs. I think given <laughs> the opportunity, people don't necessarily want any given Lord over their lives. They maybe want freedom to choose a Lord, but in the end, I think people fundamentally prefer to obey because obeying gets them off the hook, both because they can claim to be good because they've obeyed and because it frees them from the terrifying responsibility of actually being free. What do you think about that? Well, it's like the defense that was made after World War II at the Nuremberg trials. I was only following orders. I was just doing my duty. Uh, don't blame me. Blame my lords. Right? Well, yeah. of course, we are responsible for what we believe in, aren't we? I mean, we may not be responsible for creating our belief, you know, we might be recipients of belief, but finally our personhood depends on our personal ownership, our, our therefore also ethical responsibility. We are responsible for what we believe. We will answer for what we believe. I think that's part of the Christian faith. Right. And so what you believe is deeply, materially, and logically connected to what you obey and how you obey. And I think it's precisely that um, obedience appears to people as a way of not being responsible. It's always an excuse. If And I, I think... To me, you know, I think it is, is that people would rather be regarded as good than just about anything else. They don't actually have to be good. This is actually a kind of a justification or reckoning as righteous, right? I think people right. would prefer to be seen as good. And so if you can find a handy, available obedience, hopefully one that isn't too hard, but makes you look good and absolves you of the responsibility of, of uh, being free and therefore possibly looking bad, I think that is the, the general human reference. That's, that's going to be my, my sweeping claim going into this treatise. Okay, good. Let's see how it works. <laughs> no further comment at this point? Well, I think, I think finally, um, the structure of freedom does consist in obedience. There's not an alternative to all obedience, and everything turns on to whom you render obedience, to whom you give your allegiance, your loyalty, your devotion, your worship, uh, and, and who, whom do you credit? Whom do you trust? Whom do you fear and love above all? Uh, in all these ways, the real issue of freedom is not whether you will obey, but whom you obey and why. 
Right, right. I think that's exactly the point because you cannot then actually take obedience as an excuse because obedience always begs the prior question of who you believe in order to obey or what you believe in order to obey. And that so the the attempt to excuse yourself and just to appear good on the grounds of your obedience, whether you're at the Nuremberg trials or anywhere else, is, is exactly that dodging the question of what you have believed. And I think that's what Luther is really lifting up here. So to right. dive into the, the treatise itself... Um, So he opens with a pair of thesis statements. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And he goes on immediately to say, well, these appear to be paradoxical and mutually contradictory claims, but he uh, cites a number of passages from scripture to shore them up and say, well, in fact, this is what we are. And as you have no doubt heard us on this podcast say many times before, Christian existence is a paradoxical one. Um, We are, you know, to use another famous Luther paradox, sinners and saints at the same time, we are freed people who are engaged constantly in battle. So it will be the burden of proof throughout this treatise for Luther to demonstrate how you can be a perfectly free Lord of all at the exact same time that you are a perfectly dutiful servant of all. Yeah, maybe we should try to uh, uh, diminish the cognitive dissonance in the minds of our auditors at this point and try to at least initially unpack the two theses so that it's clearer what, what Luther is talking about. Go for it. Yeah, when we say a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, this is a reference to what happens when one fears, loves, and trusts God above all things. If I fear God above all, I fear no other, no created other. If I love God above all, I am not enthralled with any other created uh, would-be Lord or governor. If I trust in God above all, I don't put my trust in princes and their horses and chariots, to quote the psalm and so forth. So the freedom of the Christian, the perfectly free Lord subject to none, is exactly the fact that all worldly would-be authorities have been relativized, deabsolutized, themselves subjected to the final promised sovereignty of God. And existentially, what that means for a believer is that one lives one's life now with conscience bound to God and his word. As Luther was able to say, the statement of a free man at the Diet of Worms, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I'm not going to bow down to your death threats and recant these clear scriptures that I have bound my conscience to. But but it's not because he was free and, you know, free to court that he was, you know, obedient to nothing. But there was an alternate Lord, namely the Lord of the scriptures to which he was bound. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And what that means then is that existentially is something Paul says in Galatians 1. There, am I a people pleaser or a God pleaser? People who don't have theological freedom are finally going to be people pleasers. And as you were saying earlier, they, they, want, they want to defer responsibility by finding a simpatico uh, allegiance in this world to which they will give themselves and thus relieve themselves of personal responsibility. For Luther's freed Christian, freed, an event that freedom has overtaken you, 
No such deferment of responsibility is now possible. Anything in the world to which I give my critical loyalty, I remain ethically responsible for, to God. I'm responsible to God for my world. That's Christian freedom. Yeah, very well said. I discovered this for myself in my first call under circumstances I will not go into right now. But I realized that when we say in the catechism, we should fear, love and trust in God above all things. And, you know, fear is there first. And, you know, I've heard countless uh, pastors and and well-meaning catechism teachers saying, well, it's not that you live in a kind of fear that God's going to strike you with a lightning bolt. You know, it's more like, you know, honor or something. It's like, no, actually, you have to leave the bite in that statement because it means that if you actually fear God, then nothing else makes you afraid. And wow, is there power in that and the necessary power because there's so many things that want to intimidate and silence and control you. If you really fear God's judgment over every other judgment, then your freedom in this world is extraordinary. But I would say the corollary of that then is it really matters which God you worship, because if you worship, say, a psychopathic narcissistic God, then your freedom to obey that God only will make you a narcissistic psychopath. (laughs) If, If, however, your God is the crucified and risen Lord Jesus and his Father and their spirit, then then your freedom vis-a-vis your fear of them will have a very different character. Absolutely. It, all t- it, what really, it really turns on whom you fear, love, and trust above all. And that's in just the way you spelled out. I think actually the whole treatise is who over what, <laughs> because it's who you obey, not what you obey. And the corollary of that is that it's who you are, not what you do. And that's why it's faith that justifies rather than works. But we will, we will get into that in the second half more. So let's talk. Why don't you take a crack at perfectly doodle, dutiful servant subject to all. Okay, so the way I would put it is that if you are freed, as you emphasized, a a past action done to you, if you are freed in Christ, and if you only fear God, then all of the scrabbling ways that exist for you to um, advance yourself, get your own, live in a zero-sum game with others are radically relativized because you have been a recipient of the extraordinary grace and mercy of God, and it makes the entire world look different, including all of your horizontal relationships. So it's precisely in that changed relationship to God that it becomes possible for the first time to look at others and live in something like, um, well, a genuine communality with them that isn't either um, slavery to them, enslaving them to yourself, or I would add, it isn't also the fiction of altruism that you become selfless. Um, someone who has no self cannot love or be loved, but rather as a dutiful servant actually exists in real reciprocal relationships. And I think for Luther, it's going to also mean that not only are you serving others, but they are serving you so that there's a constant, as we've talked before, but there's there's this trade, exchange, movement um, that goes on. And it's in that sense that you can be a dutiful servant because both you are, again, freed from the zero-sum game by God's grace, but you also are able to regard others in a whole new light. Uh, very good. So what's the part about being a subject to all then? A dutiful servant subject to all. I don't know. I'm a modern person. I don't like that part. Why don't you explain it? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right. So, so of course, Luther is always thinking with the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, actually. 
And here he's particularly thinking of his exegesis, which he did in 1519, of the letter to the Galatians, the first Galatians commentary. And actually the paradox that we have here, that we've just read, you know, the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all, comes right out of Galatians 5. Let me, let's remind ourselves of what the apostle writes there. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's that freedom? We've already talked about that. That's the conscience that's now captivated uh, by the initiative of the God of the gospel uh, so that one becomes responsible to God for one's world. That's your freedom. And so you shouldn't ever fall back into self-justifying works works done on the basis of tr trying to justify yourself or win God's approval, because that actually subjects you, subjugates you to some earthly religious authority. In Paul's case, it's the Judaizers who have invaded the congregation in Galatia. So Paul then continues in verse 5, uh, For through the Spirit by faith we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. And then he talks about that for a little bit. What is, what is that love? Uh, wh and why does faith issue in love? Why does faith operate in love? For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, he says in verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. That's where Luther gets the idea, a perfectly dutiful servant subject to all, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to live by the Spirit no longer according to the flesh. And as modern theologians, 20th century theologians like Karl Barth have so famously put it, the resolution of the paradox is that Christian freedom is the freedom to love. Christian freedom is the freedom to love. A perfectly Lord, free of all other uh, earthly authorities, claiming sovereignty over the self, and but now a self that is bound to the God of the gospel and his extravagant grace, uh, liberating grace that sets us free from these petty, tyrannical lords in our lives in order to free us to do for others as Christ has done for us, faith becoming a slave and servant of others in love. I mean, that sounds really nice. <laughs> Like how how can one argue with that? But, uh, you know, immediately all these uh, obstacles jump up in my way of freedom to love. First of all, is that it just sounds like such a cliche now. I think there would need to be some serious clarity on what counts as love. And to just add again, as a modern person speaking here, there's a kind of burden of anxiety for love when you're suddenly aware of like 8 billion people on the planet who's... Um, crises can be brought to you within seconds through a global media network. I seriously do not know what it means both to love in this way all 
um, and to love and all that is so incomprehensibly huge. Maybe that's going to take us too far afield, but I, I affirm the principle in practice. I'm quite at a loss. Well, I think that's right. And I think that, but I think that that tension that you're talking about, that this, that the freedom of the Christian makes you uh, enslaved uh, uh, as a servant to love all, all, without qualification, unconditionally, what could that ever practically mean? Well, that's why we have to pray daily, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. The, there are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Obviously, we're not talking here about criminal behavior, uh, that we're well beyond that discussion. We're talking about, for Luther, one's, well, I hate to use this word, existential self-understanding. You know, uh, what, what makes me the person that I am? What guides, orients me, directs me? What is the moral structure of my life? And for Luther following Paul, it's the self-giving act of the Son of God uh, and his radical obedience making himself an offering for all other unworthy others that now has become the true narrative of my own personal life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So maybe if I could restate it in the freedom to love all in the negative case, because maybe this will make it more more available, then what that actually means is that my starting point in encountering any person near or far is not that they are an enemy or potentially an enemy. Like my, my starting assignment to the unknown or new person is not enemy. And that the people around me, I do not regard in the first place as somebody above me that I envy and want to pull down or someone below me that I am filled with contempt toward and want to kick down or someone who is too close to my equal and therefore a competitor. Like those are all ways we can slot people into categories of enemy. And so the freedom to love all would be to consciously uh, reject that assignment of, of roles to people and instead start from the point of every person I meet is someone for whom Christ died, whose mercy is extended to as well. And I have to proceed in whatever our relationship is, whether it's a far off stranger I never meet or somebody I live in the same ho house with, that has to be my starting point for engaging with them. I think so. And I think the fact that we inevitably fall short and inevitably do not succeed in loving all sacrificially like a slave in service uh, just reminds us that uh, we're not there yet. We're still on the way. That's why we daily pray for forgiveness, not just of sins we've committed, but of loving deeds we've failed to do that we've omitted to do, and our lives are saturated with those. The notion of sinfulness here is not meant to mock us or ridicule us or humiliate us, but to keep our even our own Christian holiness or sanctification or progress in sharp perspective. Uh, we will only be able to pray, no longer pray, forgive us our trespasses, when there is not yet there is not a single hurting, suffering, lost, alienated, injured, oppressed person left in the world. That's what the servant of all means. And so in a way, it's that, that second use of the law pointing out um, our failure yet to, that's why Paul had said earlier in the passage, we wait for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness, we're not there yet. It, we're still on the way. And that 
radical universalism required of love uh, shows us that we're not there yet and that we can never rest complacent in our own progress or righteousness. Right. So it's an orientation, but it's not a, a practical program. Because again, I think there we live in an objectively different time in the sense that our sins of omission have expanded, metastasized to an unmanageable <laughs> degree in a way that Luther's world simply wasn't. You know, it's a difference between when you live in a village and you know everyone in the village and when you theoretically could know and be responsible for eight billion other people. I mean, it, and there's so many. And the other thing I would say is a, a part time student of economics, which is, you know, in a sense, the study of unintended consequences of <laughs> incentives. <laughs> you know, there are so many programs to improve the lives of neighbors that fail or make things worse. So th that's just my my caution thrown up there is that the orientation to love all is not the same as knowing the right program, policy, strategy, disposition to actually make that happen. Well, I think that's right. And, and for Luther, this is where human reason comes into the picture, because it's not obvious what the loving thing to do is. It's obvious who the loving person is. It's obvious to the Christian by faith who the righteous person is. But what does it mean to live out that life of Christ in the world today. And Luther would be the first to say you cannot invoke biblical law as if this were a guideline uh, to contemporary social questions of social justice or, or economic justice or something like that. You have to use your heads. You have to think things through. And there's the discipline of ethics also that comes in here, uh, which we don't need, need to get into. But does perform a lot of mediating work in terms of answering those questions. I think what Luther speaks against is any kind of self-righteous self fanaticism, which simply says, because I'm doing signaling the right virtues and I'm publicly putting myself on the right side of history, therefore, whatever I propose politically as a policy is the way to go and you better just shut up and get on board. That would be a, a defection of reason. That would be a default of reason. That would be a sacrifice of reason in which the free Christian who's not subject even to that kind of moral bullying can simply say, let's talk about the policy. Let's talk about the evidence. Let's talk about the facts. Let's look at the arguments. Let's look, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely true. And I think needs to be heard again today. But I think it goes deeper than that. I once read this absolutely shattering essay by a mother about her addict son and coming to the crushing realization that everything she had done for him that was compassionate or, you know, by any standard of compassion was actually reinforcing his addiction and keeping him there. And it was exactly when she finally said, no more, here's the rules. If you trespass them, you're out. And he did. And she threw him out that, um, you know, after two terrible months of silence and who knows what the son went through, he finally began to turn the corner. Um, and so, you know, it's showing compassion, showing this Christ-like love is a very, very harsh and, um, difficult business. So that's why I guess I wanted to ori uh, emphasize the the orientation toward regarding others as not my enemy, but not any <laughs> clear program of, of how exactly compassion is going to work in, in real time and in, in real messy human lives. Well, we should probably actually get get back to the treatise at this point. Yeah, go, let's go. Go ahead. 
now that you've delivered all your anxieties about being a loving person, we can move on. <laughs> well, I think if you're paying attention, well, one ought to also have anxieties about a, about both on the personal and social level, what it means to be well, of a course perfectly we should. beautiful servant. Exactly the point. Yes. Let's go on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, so now, so in uh, the the treatise is is not short. It's not as long as other things. So we, of course, strongly encourage you to read it if you never have, or read it again if you did in seminary and have long since forgotten. There's just wonderful jewels studded all through the thing, and very little dreck, which is unusual for Luther. And um, but there are a couple of things I want to lift out. One of them, um, so in the the first half of the treatise, which concerns being uh, a lord of all, Luther talks through a number of powers of faith. So actually, the reality of believing in Christ, hearing the gospel, responding to it actually conveys powers. And Luther is very specific about what those powers are. So I'm going to enumerate. There are basically five of them. I mean, he's not so logical that he numbers them, but this is uh, what I've extracted from it. So we can all read them off dad and, and then we can talk through them. So the first is that um, the first power of faith is that the word of God actually lives in us and rules over us. It burns in us like a fire in the iron. So this is actually a, a power of faith and a freedom that the, what is actually that your freedom is that you are being ruled by the word of God and not by anything else. The second power of faith is that in believing, we are actually fulfilling the first commandment. You might be astonished to hear Luther ever say that you can fulfill a commandment, but he says precisely in faith, we do fulfill the commandments and that uh, this, in fact, is what causes our justification in God's eyes. It further conveys the power of being united with Christ, uh, sometimes referred to as the mystical union, um, which is sometimes controversial. But Luther says here very plainly that a power of faith is that you are actually united with Christ. You live with him and he lives in you. And as a result, we get the fourth and fifth powers of faith, which Luther calls kingship and priesthood. He's quick to say that this kingship does not mean that you get to um, sit yourself on a throne and start ordering other people around in the political realm, but that it is indeed this um, lordly freedom from fear and the ability to um, step away from all the other things that would claim your, your obedience to them. And then it, that finally leads to priesthood, which Luther thinks is even greater. And this is quite interesting, especially over against the usual Protestant stereotypes. You, I, I still all the time hear people say how how Luther was the one who said you didn't need to talk through a priest; you could talk to God directly yourself, um, <laughs> which was just. Uh, never a true characterization of uh, medieval Christianity. But also what Luther emphasizes here is not that you get to talk to God directly, but rather that you get to pray for other people. Like it's definitely not a just me and God. It's me speaking to God on behalf of others. And that carries with it the further power of priesthood, which is that you can teach others true things about God that actually even as a lay person, this is this is the the royal priesthood, the common priesthood, not the ordained priesthood or pastorates. You actually get to you have the freedom to tell other people the good news about Christ. And so for Luther, that is the landscape of Christian freedom, this very specific set of relationships to faith, to God and the powers that come to intervene on behalf of others. Very good, Sarah. So let's let's go through your list your list of five powers one by one now. Okay. 
Well, I've offered my commentary, so you offer yours. The first is, the word of God lives in the soul and rules it. Okay, and I think there's a prior question here that needs to be specified. What is the word of God, since there are so many words of God? That comes right out of this treatise. Right, he, he takes this objection up at the beginning of the treatise. You may ask, what then is the word of God, and how shall I, it be used, since there are so many words of God? Now, I think this is a really important hermeneutical insight. The Bible is a huge book. You can get almost anything out of the Bible that you want. It can be a wax nose that you shape by selective quotation and, and proof texting and all these kinds of abuses. And Luther goes to the heart of the problem. What is the word of God, since there are so many words of God? How do you find the forest for the tree or the tree for the forest in the Bible? And he answers, the word is the gospel of God concerning his son, who was made flesh, suffered, rose from the dead, and was glorified through the spirit who sanctifies. To preach Christ means to feed the soul and make it righteous, set it free, and save it, provided it believes the preaching. Faith alone is the saving and efficacious use of the word of God. He's quoting here Romans 1. The word is the gospel of God. When I'm teaching students... I have to drum this because of American biblicism and the naive and dangerous belief that everything in the Bible is the word of God without differentiation whatsoever. Because of this, they get lost and confused and become dupes of uh, preachers who selectively use the Bible to advocate a unevangelical in the sense of non-gospel theology. And here Luther cuts through all the nonsense and says, the Bible has authority because of the gospel that it bears. The gospel is the word of God that speaks to us Gentiles and incorporates us into the promises given to Israel of old. The gospel of God concerning his son. That's the hermeneutical key to rightly using the Bible. How do you use the Bible rightly? By reading it as a history of God's promises made through Israel and through the one Israelite, Jesus Christ, to the whole world. Uh, and that is comes to us, connects with us, and makes our access to the scriptures. Yeah, and it's interesting in, in that American biblicism, there are basically only two genres, command and science. And a great deal of the Bible is not command anyway. A great deal of the command is not directed to us, as Luther goes on to say, and none of it is science. <laughs> right, right. So the, the Bible actually dissolves under pressure when you approach it with those biblicistic beliefs. It can't stand up to the pressure. Well, there's no gospel in it, right? There's no, and right, there's no gospel in it. Uh, or, or you have the, the, the perverse theology that you believe the gospel because the Bible authorizes it. It's exactly the other way around. It's the gospel that refers us to the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. And the gospel is this living word of God concerning his son, etc., by which it is preaching Christ to feed the soul, make it righteous, set it free, and save it, right? 
that's that's the word of God, the word of God that that hits home with us, transforms us into faith, and so works in the way of that first power, transforming the soul, as you said. Let's go on to power number two. Okay, power number two is that is that faith is the fulfilling of the first commandment, and therefore it is our justification before God. Yes, this I love this argument, and it just makes certain kinds of stick-in-the-mud Lutherans very nervous, uh, because <laughs> because it uh, it sounds like Luther is saying that faith fulfills the law. Well, it sounds like it because that's what he's saying. He's saying. <laughs> That faith glorifies God as God, that faith gives God God's due. And that's the essence of justice, that you give someone what they are due. What does God do? God is due our trust, our faith. And how does God get us justly to trust him? He does it by showing himself trustworthy in the gospel concerning his son. So is the anxiety from the aforementioned stick in the muds that it seems that we are doing something in order to be justified? Yes. And that's, again, is a, it's a Trinitarian deficit at work here. It's a deficit of the doctrine of the spirit. Because as Luther, in the quote I read, and was glorified through the spirit who sanctifies, it's right there in Luther's own word. The word does not work automatically. Some Lutherans with their word alone theology are, are such monergists that they become Unitarians and they don't recognize that the grace to believe the word incarnate is the work of the Spirit. And these are distinct works, the work of the Son giving himself for us and the work of the Spirit enabling us to personally say this work of the Son is valid for me. I can trust in it. I personally put my trust in it. That event of the Spirit uh, is why faith is justifying faith and why justifying faith is the fulfillment of the law in the sense that it justifies God. It gives God God's due of thanksgiving and praise for his magnanimous act of grace. Well, I think just very basic religious self-reflection shows you that you can't make yourself believe. I mean, people can be in quite agonies because they want to believe. They'd rather believe. Life would be better if they had a God they can trust in, but they can't bring themselves to do it. So the idea that even having faith is a work you could accomplish is uh, it's it's um, equivocation on the word faith. Faith is not something that you can generate of yourself in order to procure some idea of righteousness. Exactly. Exactly. Luther says that just a few pages later. Therefore, in order not to covet and to fulfill the commandment, a, a man is compelled to despair of himself and to seek the help which he does not find in himself elsewhere. Right? Right, right, right. Okay. So that's the work of the Spirit, and that's the second power. Yeah. Next power is union with Christ. Yes, and this is, you call this the mystical union. Luther here describes it so beautifully uh, as the, once again, that theme that I've emphasized again and again is the Christological backbone of Luther's, uh, of Luther's entire theology is uh, the third incomparable benefit of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. 
Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has, as though it were its own, and whatever the soul has Christ claims as his own. So, let faith come between sin's death and damnation, and they will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. It's the joyful exchange here, existentially interpreted Christ comes in the, as the living word of God and says we unite as a bride and a bridegroom. Uh, how does that happen? I take what is yours and give you what is mine. And that's the joyful exchange. We have a most pleasing vision not only of communion but of a blessed struggle and victory and salvation and redemption. Yeah, this is just beautifully in keeping with Luther's lifelong emphasis that we do not have an absent Christ, but a very present Christ. And the reason why you can draw strength and fearlessness from Christ is because he is right there with you through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit. You are actually united with Christ. That's where the power comes from. Actually, Sarah, that statement occurs in the preface to Pope Leo. Uh, That uh, uh, very, I'm going to quote it here because I think it's so important. How much more properly did the apostles call themselves servants of the present Christ and not vicars of an absent Christ? In these uh, words, of course, he's criticizing a certain theory theory of the papacy, that Christ went away to heaven and left left his authority, bequeathed his authority to the to the popes. Uh, who would then be his vicars, the vicars of an absent Christ. And for Luther, of course, that's just not true. When we understand the word of God as gospel, we understand what it means to say that Jesus who was crucified for us is risen. We understand that resurrection does not mean his absence, but his presence, and his presence in that present proclamation of the gospel to do this joyful exchange. And let me add a side note, therefore, to anxious and perpetually overworking themselves pastors. Are are you working with a present Christ or are you working for an absent Christ? It will make a huge difference to your ministry. Yeah, I think this is a real problem in the ministry today that for various reasons, even if they don't think of it consciously this way, instead of feeling, feeling Christian freedom, which I've described as responsibility to God for my world, right? I think so many clergy today get into a very destructive way of thinking that they are responsible to the world for God. And that is an impossible task that will just destroy you. You can't possibly be responsible for God. Only God is responsible for God. And you, in the meantime, burn yourself out trying to be God for all these people with all their semi-idolatrous expectations. Very much so. Well, then let's use that to uh, bounce into kingship and priesthood, because that seems to be the right antidote. Yeah, well, kingship and priesthood are just, again, the continuations of the opening statement of the paradox. Kingship, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord subject to none, like a king. And a Christian is a, a perfectly dutiful servant bound subject to all, like a priest. And so the two offices of, of king and priest 
are here being elaborated. You see more there? No, no, that's good. That's good. You just wanted to go through all five powers of faith, so I was bringing us to the last two. Right. First, with respect to king, the kingship, every Christian is by faith so exalted above all things that by virtue of a spiritual power, he is Lord of all things without exception, so that nothing can do him any harm. In fact, all things are made subject to him. Now, this is, let's remind ourselves, this is the faith of the martyrs. This is the faith of Luther recognizing that by publishing this treatise, he may very well set into motion the train of events that will lead to him being burned at the stake as a heretic. But Luther is free to make this testimony and make this argument, right, like a king. He's not fearing any man any anymore. In his last uh, sermon, the night before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King invoked this sense of royal freedom when he said, I ain't fearing any man. I ain't fearing any man. That's I just want to do God's will. I just want to do God's will. That's a, 500 years later. That's an echo of Luther's thought here. Well, and again, it's really striking and so important to realize this kingship means fearlessness. It does not mean accruing and asserting power over others. That, for Luther, is the critical difference of Christian or Christ-like kingship versus um, human or worldly kingships. That's right. In fact, quite the contrary, this kind of power issues in uh, the, the priestly work of being of service to others, as you explained earlier, what Luther really means by the priesthood of all believers. Right, right. So it's, it is, again, uh, if you have accrued power, it is in order to serve and to give to others, not in order to, uh, your fearlessness is not on account of your being safe because you have so many people tied up and bound to you by your, you know, your blackmail and bribe and um, pitting them against each other like a, you know, a Game of Thrones kind of thing. That's not where your power or your priesthood lies. Right. And now, as, as Luther wraps up those five powers, Sarah, he brings up the discussion that we got into a little bit earlier, uh, how the expectation of, of loving all, serving all, all people in love uh, is, is something that is beyond us, beyond our uh, hope of ever fulfilling in this life. It's a constant struggle. And so Luther then brings up in the treatise the whole question of, of sanctification. And this is what he says. It would indeed be proper proper if we were wholly inner and perfectly spiritual men that we should uh, love, accomplish love. But we shall only be such at the last day, the day of the resurrection of the dead. As long as we live in the flesh, we only begin to make some progress in that which will be perfected in the future life. Faith in these riches must grow from day to day into the, even to the future life. Yet the believer remains in this mortal life on earth. In this life he must control his own body and have dealings with men. Here the works begin. And other reasonable disciplines subjected to the spirit so that the human body will obey and conform to the inner man and faith and not revolt against faith and hinder the inner man. 
as it is the nature of the body to do if it is not held in check. So Luther here then invokes Romans 7 and talks about in experience meeting a contrary will within oneself. The very sermon text I think you and I both covered last Sunday, right? The good that I would, I, the good that I would, I do not. That which I would not do, that I do. Who will deliver me? Yeah, and just one more quote there. In doing these works of love, we must not think that a man is justified before God by them. For faith, which alone is righteousness before God, cannot endure this erroneous opinion. And why is it erroneous? Because, as just specified, we don't succeed in loving all people with the unqualified love of Christ. We make progress in it. We do it in our little world, step by painful step, two steps forward, one step back. There is this kind of gradual progress or growth Luther talks about in the transformation of the inner man. But the inner man has not totally uh, conquered the outer man yet. Okay, let's go on. Okay, great. Well, in the same first half of the treatise, which we'll wrap up quickly, but I also want to draw out that Luther talks about multiple joyful exchanges. And in fact, these do continue into the second half of the treatise. And there's definite overlap with powers of faith for reasons that will soon become clear. So once again, I want to just enumerate these exchanges and we will talk through them and then use them to transition to the, the second half, which concerns being a dutiful servant of all in more detail. So very much like um, the second power of faith we heard about that faith fulfills the first commandments, Luther sees at work actually a joyful exchange here, which probably also, Dad, alarms the stick in the mud Lutherans you mentioned. Luther says, because we reckon God as righteous in faith, God reckons our faith as righteousness. So this is, I would say, classically in the form of a forensic justification, the, the emphasis on the, the reckoning and faith standing in for righteousness. So that's the first exchange that, that because we honor God truly, love God truly, God in turn reckons us righteous. The first exchange. The second exchange is uh, similar to the mystical union that we mentioned, which is, and in fact, you read out this, this um, passage from the Freedom of Christian Dad, which is that the exchange is that I give Christ all of my sin, death, and damnation, and he in turn gives me all of his life, blessedness, and salvation. So there is an exchange of goods, in a sense, between me and Christ, based on this uh, bride and bridegroom um, intimacy that we share with Christ. An exchange of goods for bads. Right. <laughs> Good way of putting it. Well, that was so exactly after that, Luther goes on to uh, enumerate a third joyful exchange without which the second is uh, a really rotten deal for Christ, <laughs> which is that is the joyful exchange of the incarnation or the Christological exchange referring to Philippians 2, which is the exchange of the, the privileges, blessedness, uh, safety from harm of the divine existence of the eternal son in order to take on human flesh and be subject to all that humans are subject to, including, finally, death on the cross. So it's only, for Luther, it's really important to have that Christological backbone of, you know, it is because he is truly divine who has freely come down to our situation that he is, that Christ is able to take all of our bads and give us his goods. Uh, a purely human Christ would make this entire edifice crumble into nothing but a horror show um, which some contemporary theologians have accused it of being anyway. But for Luther, none of this works unless Christ is truly human and truly divine. 
And then that leads into uh, uh, Christ's ministry models, then priesthood and kingship, which we just talked about, those powers of faith. For Luther, those are also exchanges for the reason I specified earlier, which is that we are not primarily praying for ourselves when we are priests. We are praying for others, and we are putting ourselves in others' place. And I'm sure we've talked before about the many um, stories in in uh, the Gospels, and also alluded to in, in Acts and, and the New Testament letters, in which other people are interceding for the sick or the possessed or or the dead, and um, and in response to their prayers, Christ heals the the person who was wounded. So this is another exchange of ourselves inserting ourselves in the other person's relationship with God in order to procure for them what they need. And that in turn leads to the fifth and final joyful exchange, which takes us into the second half of the treatise, which for Luther, Christian ethics, as we would call it now, is essentially a life of exchanges. It's this, um, he uses the language of ecstasis, of standing outside of ourselves, rising up to God above us, descending to our neighbor below us, always um, this, uh, yeah, commerce, like I said before, this constant trade exchange movement that a holy life is not a self-enclosed one, but one of constant exchanges for and with my neighbor's good. Yeah, well said, Sarah. Very good. And, you know, to put this another contemporary terminology that we use for this ecstasy is the decentered self. And I even wonder whether the philosophers who have come up with this notion, the centered self, the decentered self, uh, are not somehow uh, dependent upon Luther's own language. Uh, because Luther described the sinful state as incurvatus in se, in Latin. That means being curved into oneself. And then he added colorfully in German, as if your belly were the center of the universe. So that's, that's the centered self. It's the self-centered self for whom the whole world revolves around me, myself, and I. And the ecstasy of faith takes us out of ourselves to faith in God and love for our neighbor. It's a decentered self. But it's still a self. It's not an annihilated self. No, it's not an, no, not at all. In fact, it, it exists in faith toward God and love for the neighbor. Those are acts, those are, you know, acts of the self. It, the self has this, this kind of new agency in Christ. And it's just as radical as we were saying earlier. Here's a quote about that, about that ex eccentric, decentered existence from the second half of the treatise. A man does not live for himself alone in this mortal body to work for it alone. But he lives also for all men on earth. Rather, he lives only for others and not for himself. He should think and contemplate this one thing alone, that he may serve and benefit others in all that he does, considering nothing except the need and advantage of his neighbor. Now, Luther holds that. He says that's what the new life in Christ is. Um, and if we say, well, who can do that? How is that possible? We have to, Christians have to live with that tension. That tension uh, is not to be uh, uh, domesticated or tamed or something like that. The command to love as one has been loved in Christ is unconditional, just like the love of Christ for us is unconditional. 
Right. And I think it's so important to say that, again, this is not an ethic you can achieve independently of God or, you know, secularly appropriate and think it's going to work because it's just not the the cost. I mean, the real human cost is simply too high if you don't have, you know, powers of faith backing it up. Here, let me also read a, a quotation here. Luther says, this, this is how you ought to think to yourself. Although I am an unworthy and condemned person, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with an eager will, do all things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches? I will therefore give myself as Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me." So sometimes we have this phrase, uh, Lutherans like to say that we are little Christs to each other, but Luther doesn't say little Christ. He just says Christ. Actually, because Christ is living in you, when you serve your neighbor, you are Christing your neighbor. (laughs) You are actually being Christ to your neighbor for Luther. Again, it's very important here. This is not that Luther has such a high estimation of our capacity to be good. Obviously not. It's he has, Luther has such a high estimation of Christ's presence in us. And that is why it becomes possible to serve the neighbor in this joyful way. And he goes on to say, not in order to, uh, you know, uh, snare other people into giving me back what I want, though he does expect that in a a rightly functioning community, everyone is serving everyone else, but in this true, free and joyful way, just as Christ himself gave himself to me. And you cannot do that unless Christ is the one doing it in you. That's right. And so, again, Christian freedom consists in being set free in being captured to God through the gospel. And Christian love consists in being set free to love. You get to love. You don't have to love, you get to love. Luther writes in conclusion, We conclude, therefore, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor. Otherwise, he is not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith, in his neighbor through love. By faith he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. So the paradox has been explained. Yeah, and... um, Yeah, so, and then I I think we should add, though, that we can get very... um, caught up in the wrong way and perhaps a little romantic about this uh, set of exchanges because we are still sinners even if Christ is alive in us. But Luther does add a critical edge to this kind of love and service for neighbor. And that means resisting false laws of all kinds. And I think this is really important because there is a kind of, um, I would say, slavish compassion or or um, self-sacrificing love that isn't the right kind of self-sacrificing. It's actually rather an egotistical self-sacrifice or a cowardly compassion. But for Luther, there are always those who are going to be imposing false laws of all kinds. Um, Of course, he's thinking primarily at this moment in his career of false religious laws, but he's going to go on to confront false political and social laws as well. And part of your Christian service and love of others is actually this kingly resistance of false powers. So uh, we should always remember that there is this critical 
judging edge to Christian love. It's not just simply, you know, sweetness, self-sacrifice, um, you know, visions of altruism and so forth. And I think maybe that can lead us into our final comments about how Luther's whole vision here relates to the conversation about political and social freedom today. Yeah, and it's a particularly a burning question in the United States right now uh, because of the rise of the um, the new the new left and its identity politics and the uh, consciousness raising that's going on where one can often be battered into silence with statements like check your privilege or something like that or battered into an extreme overcorrection at the other extreme right right i recently made the statement in one of my circles that we should not, Christians should be free enough, we should be free enough in Christ, both to recognize the demands of radical love and to resist anyone trying to impose on us other than our own conscientious duty in radical love to be responsible to God for our little piece of the world. And so, you know, if someone tells me to check my privilege, using that jargon now, in order to uh, cause me to sacrifice my intellect or abandon my calling uh, to be a truth teller, etc., etc., I don't need to obey that, nor do I need to fear that. But part and parcel with that commitment to using my reason to think about the love of the neighbor, I'm also free to see through the jargon, see through the overreaches, see through the hyperbole, see through the polemics and the fireworks, and say the thing that's pertinently true. So, for example, in this context of the American discussion right now about Black Lives Matter, I've said to people, friends on the left and friends on the right, I've said, All lives in America will in fact matter when black lives in particular matter. I think this is how you cut through all the nonsense. I don't give a hoot about joining up an organization called Black Lives Matter, let alone succumbing uncritically to any ideology of a group like that. I would, of course, say exactly the same thing about some of the right-wing white supremacist groups and so forth and so on. And I I don't even mean to make an equivalency here. I'm just saying that I'm not fearing any man. I'm not subjecting my reason, my intellect, to any alien claim. But in Christ, I see, uh, as an American in the 21st century, that it is important to say black lives matter, not as an ideological statement, but as a political truth at this junction in history. Yeah, that that was really beautifully expressed, Dad. Uh, I would add with a slightly um, darker edge to it that if you are not motivated simply by the kingly privilege of telling the truth, and I do mean privilege there because you are accountable to God alone, then be aware that any obedience to any other than God will eventually enslave you and turn on you. So it is not safe to to buy off uh, or to give away your obedience cheaply because you want to look good, as I, I said at the beginning here, because any any power that 
takes your obedience will take you with it as well. So you have to um, obey God. And like you say, say the true thing because it's true. And then take whatever consequences if people really, their their desire is not to share in the exploration of the truth and then how how rightly to instantiate the truth in the world. But if their goal is actually to ensnare your obedience in order to ensnare you, in the end, friend, you're going to still lose. <laughs> so right. so even the, the pain and cost of obeying God alone is still better than the cost of obeying anything else. Yeah, and I think as you said, so so well a couple of episodes ago perhaps the most uncritical allegiance people give in america is to consumerism under the brand of our american way of life or the american dream and nationalism as the substitute faith that has filled the void of the loss of the christian faith in the public heart and public mind of this country And so you give yourself to these idols, uh, American prosperity and American power. Your warning, and I think you're quite right here, is these idols are going to fail you. They're going to collapse, and great will be your uh, despair when these idols in which you believed have failed you. They will be gods that fail. Yeah. And let me just flip this finally now to a slightly more positive conclusion, which is, again, my my observation of human nature is that a great deal of ideological obedience is the substitute for the true gift being expressed, by which I mean is that everybody has been endowed with immense creative gifts by God. And creativity can, can be art, but it can also be entrepreneurship. It can be um, civil servanthood. There are many ways to ex- express the creative gifts that you have been given. And a lot of people simply don't, whether it's, you know, fear of failure or lack of encouragement, or um, it's just too strange or too lonely or whatever. And I think what I see a lot is people latching on to ideological trains because that appearance of goodness and that appearance of obedience is easier easier than the terrifying freedom of trying to express the gift with all of the, again, uh, loneliness and cost that goes with it. But for God's sake, people, God gave you these gifts. Go out there and express them. Give your energies to that and not to some fake version of righteousness or fake version of obedience. Your your gifts are so immensely valuable that that's, that is really where the world is hurting when you are not putting forth what's been given you the freedom for which christ has set us free let us submit not again to a yoke of bondage amen hallelujah Amen. Hallelujah. Great. Well, we are going to follow up this most tonic episode with uh, the next one on that strange son of Martin Luther, namely Friedrich Nietzsche. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.